archaeologists have, in the midst of Roman ruin, have discovered prayers on tablets written down, submerged way underneath the surface and unearthed actual prayers written a long time ago, prayers of cursing. These were prayers, uh, most of the prayers in the Mediterranean world were written down on these tablets. You can even punch this in the internet search engine and it'll yield a lot of fascinating results. Uh, Punch in curse tablets and you'll see what I'm talking about. But these prayers that were written so long ago and unearthed were very negative, very dark uh, prayers. The people at the time were largely polytheistic. They believed in many gods. And these were prayers to the gods, prayers of wrath, revenge, retribution. The, uh, this person has done me wrong. Inflict pain on them. Pay them back. I'm going to put up a, an actual curse tablet. This is an actual prayer to the gods from many years ago found by archaeologists in Roman ruin. I invoke you, holy gods, tie up, block, strike, overthrow, harm, destroy, kill, shatter Eucurius, the charioteer, and all of his horses tomorrow in the arena of Rome. Let the starting gates not open properly. Let him not compete quickly. Let him not pass. It's very thorough. Let him not make the turn properly. Let him not overpower. Let him not come from behind. Instead, let him collapse. Let him be bound. Let him be broken up. Let him drag. Quickly, quickly, let his breath be bad and let his teeth not be dazzling white. Now, I made that last part up, but 95% of that verbatim is a prayer from a curse tablet. Now, let me ask you, do you think they found any bless the enemy tablets? Any of those type of prayers? Do you think there were any prayers, uh, God, this person has brought pain, God's, this person has brought pain. And I pray that you free me from resentment and bring them genuine repentance and bring healing to our relationship. How many bless my enemy tablets do you think they found in Roman ruin? Want to guess? None. None. The maxim at the time, in fact, they found this on many tablets. The maxim was fierce loyalty to friends, fiery opposition to your opponents. And into this world, a carpenter emerged from a tiny village in Nazareth. And he said things like, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemies, bless those who, bless and pray for those who persecute you, who hate you. And Jesus taught something, he taught something entirely different. He, he talked about it a different way. He talked about mercy. Jesus talked about forgiveness. Early on to his followers, he looked at them and he said, if, if you love only those who love you, then what reward do you get? He taught them to pray. Everyone knows this part of that prayer. Forgive us, Lord, our debts as, that could be the biggest word, the smallest word, as, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. When Jesus talked about forgive, he didn't mean forget. He didn't mean condone. He didn't mean tolerate or excuse or overlook. But he meant that we ought to choose the way of love over hate. It was radical. Back up. 
back up many, many years to Exodus, to when the law was given to the people of Israel, to at this time so long ago when the rule was, and you can finish this with me out loud if you want to, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, when we hear that, we think revenge, getting even, settling the score. They hit you, hit them back. They bomb us, bomb them back. They start a rumor about you, then you look at others and say, did you hear what they did last summer? We want revenge. And we use that verse. Isn't that what it teaches? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But when it was given, the law was given to a very primitive people who needed laws. They, they needed to be brought back into the fold. The, the, these laws were given for property damage and personal injury to settle disputes. There were literally things, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see things in there in the context of that scripture about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You'll see things about digging holes and, and a neighbor's animal falling into that hole. And just a lot of uh, crazy things, a, a, a bull goring someone to death. That'd be a tough phone call. How'd they handle that dispute back then? Uh, Bob, this is Phil. A lot of neighbors been talking about that bull of yours goring some of the kids. How do they handle these disputes? They needed laws, didn't they? And all those things, uh, pregnant women being punched, slaves having their teeth kicked out, dead animals falling into holes, it all sounds so primitive, so foreign, so repressive, so barbaric, so chaotic. That is until you turn on your television set any time of the day and see... You see a camera crew following, following police officers as they chase people and break up fights between neighbors, right? And it has to do, for the most part, with property damage and personal injury. Or you flip the channel and you'll see a court TV show where one side is arguing against the other, wait for it again, as they settle property damages and personal injuries. You see, the law was given so long ago to help people. And the goal of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was for equal justice. It was to bring justice and it was to lessen violence. You see, revenge always escalates. Have you noticed? Revenge always escalates. Fast forward back to Jesus, up to Jesus. He comes into an environment where, get this, Crazy to think about this, hard to even imagine that religious people took something that was written in the book from ancient, from so long ago, and they twisted it to suit their purposes. And they took an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which was equal justice. They took that to mean, let's get even. And it's there that Jesus says, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, bless and pray and love. This morning, as we continue to walk through this Sermon on the Mount, the, the sermon itself is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We've isolated Matthew 5, 3 to 12 as we're walking through the Beatitudes. Blessed are those. Blessed are those. Jesus is supremely concerned. He's a big advocate for your happiness and mine. And he says it's going to be found in a way that's very different. And this morning, we're honing in on this idea. Blessed are the merciful, for they will find mercy. One day, Jesus dropped a bomb on the disciples. He, he said this to them, simple phrase. Let's go to the other side. 
But it wasn't so much a statement, an invitation, a command to, to geography. It was something technical, something bigger than that. The other side was a, a city called Decapolis. And in that city, it was not the Jewish state. It was not the place for the nation of Israel. It contained, a, 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 it was a home for seven nations. Here are those nations. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Grigahites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. And it was a home of these different people. The Jewish people considered them pagan people. They set up pagan altars that had an exaltation for sex and violence and greed. And Jesus says, let's go to that side. On that side, there was Roman rule. In fact, 6,000 Roman soldiers stood guard over Decapolis on the other side. And they were called, this is an important word, remember this, the Roman soldiers, the 6,000, were called legion. And their symbol was a boar's head. Sounds so primitive, doesn't it? Unless you were watching a basketball game yesterday in the SEC and saw a former president sitting in the stands with a guy with a pig's head on his head next to him. But the Romans, that was their symbol. They were the legion and the swine, the the head of the boar was their symbol. The disciples reluctantly, they didn't want to. They wanted to follow Jesus He had rock star status at the time. He was teaching with amazement and changing lives. And they wanted a part of that. So they followed him over to the other side. And it was different than the side that they had been on, the friendly home side. This side, enemy territory, the pagan state was different. There was not large crowds. The large crowds on the home turf were surrounding and swarming Jesus. But on the other side, they were met with a single, deranged, demonic, self-mutilating, tomb-dwelling lunatic. And this man, single man, falls, rejected by his family and friends, falls at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus asks him, who are you? And this man, if you know it, say it with me, out of his mouth said, we are legion. And this tormented man was released of these evil spirits, and legion does what? Runs into a herd of pig and they, pigs and they head to the river. Those who were tending the pigs that day, they ran and told everybody. And those people, they came, they heard the news and they came. And they wanted to see this man that was the lowest of the lows, how he was dressed and in his right mind and he had been delivered. But unlike the home turf, these people reacted differently than they did in Jerusalem and Galilee and the friendly places Jesus had been. They said to him, go. They, they believed it was authenticated, but he had power. But he was from where? He was from the other side. And Jesus tells the man, he, he acted differently to the man that he had just healed differently than he did on his side. He tells the man, he had been telling people, follow me. But he tells this man, go tell your story. Life is forever different. Go tell your story. And oh, he did. When they returned the second time, there were large crowds waiting on Jesus. A changed life will do that, won't it? Somebody who's telling their story of what Jesus can do, it'll garner the attention of other people. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus performed a famous miracle where he multiplied the food to feed thousands of people. And in Mark chapter 6, On his side, 
he performed this miracle. And the scripture tells us that they had 12 basketfuls left over. Think 12 tribes of Israel. God loves his people. But in Mark chapter 8, he performed the miracle, multiplied. And the scripture tells us in Mark 8 that there were seven baskets of leftovers. Think seven nations. The gospel's getting big. God, through a man named Jesus, was showing the world that God loves people on the other side. In fact, you know what's wrong with me and you? We're side takers. We divide people up. And Jesus is saying this good news, this gospel is way bigger than you think it is. Have you heard of the, ever, ever heard of the Samaritans? It's sort of another example of the other side. One day Jesus and the disciples are walking together and the disciples, uh, Jesus says, let's go over here. And he gets them into a Samaritan village. Lo and behold, the disciples, man, they, they, you know what they said? They said, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire and destroy these people? I mean, it's one of those onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus, right? It's us and them, and we're on Jesus' side. They're not on Jesus' side, but we're on his side. And Jesus, listen, church, Jesus does what? He protects the Samaritans. He protects the people on the other side while at the same time rebukes his followers. He meets a woman at a well. She's a Samaritan. He knows she's had five husbands. He forgives and sends her out to be one of the early evangelists. He tells a story which has become, hands down, the most famous story ever told. And in this story, there's a priest, there's an Israelite, there's a Levite. There's a hero, and that hero is a Samaritan. There was a story of ten lepers that Jesus healed. He touched, and they were all healed. All ten of them were healed. But in Jesus' parable, only one returned to give him thanks. One out of ten. And that man was a Samaritan. Samaritans are essentially an extinct people group. Not many of them left. But amongst the extinct people groups, they're among the most famous. And almost every time we refer to the Samaritans, we put the adjective good in front of it because of a man who was supposed to be their enemy. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And the way he taught and the way he lived, and the culture in which he fleshed it out is a beautiful thing to behold. And what a message for the religious people of our day. The gospel, it's way bigger, way more expansive than we could ever dream. When it comes to mercy, you and I, we need to experience mercy. Would you agree with that? I mean, to, if you're going to have a message, then you need to experience, experience it. If you're going to express it, it needs to be part of who you are. And the scripture, when it describes God's mercy, it doesn't hold anything back. You know anybody that's tentative, they're real timid, they just hold back. You have a conversation with them, you're like, what do you mean by that? 
it's very vague and nebulous. It's just not, it's just general. And like, what do you, what do you mean? And God's adjectives, his descriptions of his mercy are, are big in scripture. Ephesians chapter two, verses uh, four to five, but God being rich, say it church in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Rich. Now I bet, I bet there's some in here who maybe are so beaten up. It's a tough existence. It's, it's a meager type of paycheck. It's a hard life right now. And it's hard to think of that word rich. God's mercy, when the Bible describes the richness, it, it does so as an overflow. It's huge. It's God's love. Listen to this beautiful idea expressed in Deuteronomy. The eternal God is your refuge. His everlasting arms are under you. You can't get too low. You can't fall too far. You can't fail too miserably. You can't bomb too big to be outside of the scope of God's care. And His arms are under you. In Hosea, a beautiful uh, passage, a book to read in the, in the Old Testament, it says God saying, I will heal you of your faithlessness. My love will know no bounds. That's the richness of God's mercy. My people will live again under my shade. Years ago when we lived in Southern California, um, Susan's parents had a vacation home in the Coachella Valley in Palm Desert. And we would a lot of times go there. And one time we were dumb enough to spend a week or so there in the summertime. And, it, you know, triple-digit heat, it's, it's tough. It doesn't have the humidity we have in the south, but it's like a blowtorch, just dry, and it can almost kill you. It's tough. And, and I was driving back to San Diego on the 15 freeway, and I hear an explosion. And I'm, I'm scared to death. You guys know I'm a polarizing figure with many death threats on my life. So I ducked. I heard the noise. I ducked. I almost veered over. I realized I, you know, I, was, I was operating a motor vehicle, so I had to raise up. And the fizz from the back seat was the first clue. that I had left a Coke baking in that triple-digit heat. And I had yielded, I guess, the car, turned the car kind of rough, and it fell and it exploded in the back seat. The desert is a very hot place. In biblical times, people knew that. It was hot and it was arid. It was a desert. And when God tells his people, my people will live again under my shade, they thought of God's refreshment. They thought of him being a shield, of him being a cover. And that's the beauty of God's mercy. It's hard, you know, to think of his mercy sometimes, isn't it? About five or six years ago, I got a phone call from an investigator. The investigator said, Mr. Green, are you currently in the state of New Mexico? I said, no. He said, Mr. Green, did you stay at a West Texas hotel last night? Again, I said, no. He said, Mr. Green, did you purchase some auto parts from a Napa auto store in, in Monroe, Louisiana? And if you know me well, you would know. The answer was definitely no, right? I wouldn't know what to do with auto parts if I purchased them. No, sir. You see, my identity had been stolen. And I did what any good guy would do. I first blamed my wife, right? What'd you do, babe? 
and I went, I checked my wallet. I was, I had a very awareness, a very sense about myself and my identity. I checked my wallet for my license and social security card. I thought, Hey, it'd be great to have a a paper shredder and a safe at home. I began to think about what do we do here? I called uh, bank plus to see if it was more than just a name to see if it was a promise to see if they could, if they could help me out. And my friend, uh, John, uh, Joel Ross at the time helped me out. And we, y'all know I have a vast sum of wealth and they got that back for us and it all worked out. But let me just say, you don't need a bank to call you to rob you of your spiritual identity. And God is saying to us, my arms are underneath you. My shade is over you. My mercy is rich toward you. Now that would seem, and I understand that is always a take it or leave it scenario, isn't it? We can can well up with faith or we can shrink back in doubt or we can just be apathetic. But it seems to me God wants to clearly tell us. He wants to speak over the voices in your head of condemnation, of shame, and stuff from your past. And to speak His mercy. And what's great about the gospel, when you look at Jesus, the one who taught in the Sermon on the Mount, the one who said, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. He wanted those guys to get God's mercy. And maybe that's why he chose who he chose. He wanted them to experience his mercy and he wanted them to be on a mercy mission. When I was a kid, there was no Disney Channel, Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network. There was just Saturday morning cartoons. Can anybody feel me? Do you remember that? And you could just picture me as a little boy grabbing my Fruit Loops and just plopping down on the carpet for hours of uninterrupted, non-parental involvement, cartoon watching. And I love some Smurfs. I love some Richie Rich. I love some Schoolhouse Rock. Say it with me. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Hooking up words, phrases, and clauses. Yeah, you got that? Good. I'm appealing to the 40 and over crowd here. Man, I I love these shows. I I love, my favorite had to be Scooby-Doo. Shaggy, Fred, Scooby. I love Mr. T, the globetrotting gymnastics instructor who taught the kids great moral lessons and was always unraveling a mystery. And these cartoons, I remember, there was, I was always intrigued my little boy mind because these folks, these, these characters were always on a mission. Man, I, wouldn't, I would have got up with my Fruit Loops if there wasn't a mission. They wouldn't have kept my attention, but they, they had a mission. There was something to solve. There was a problem to tackle, a puzzle to solve. There was something for them to do that required their best, and it required other people, and it required teamwork. And, you know, God has set that in us. He's built it. It's, it's inherent. It's innate within us to be a part of a mission. And the message of Jesus, this mercy message is for us to be carriers of his mercy, to go to places that make us uncomfortable, to go to the other side, to declare the good news. And I would say that sadly, the church today, we're kind of like IRS agents. What does an IRS agent do? An an IRS agent tells us about what we owe. They tell us the debt we owe. And God tells us that we owe a debt. But he tells us that Jesus has paid the debt. So maybe we're more like an agent from the publisher's clearinghouse. Maybe we've got really good news to tell people. 
that could change their lives. It could change everything. But you see, this mercy that Jesus talks about, we've got to realize that God is rich in mercy to us. It's got to be a part of our spiritual identity. We can't let someone steal that from us. And it's to be a mission that we're called to. There's a larger purpose. But as we close, I want to say what some of us know and what some may know painfully this morning is this mercy thing can challenge us really, really close to home. I want to close this morning by reading something. Are you allowing your hurts to turn into hate? If so, ask yourself, is it working? Has your hatred done you any good? Has your resentment brought you any relief, any peace? Has it granted you any joy? Let's say you get even. Let's say you get him back. Let's say she gets what she deserves. Let's say your fantasy of fury runs its ferocious course and you return all your pain with interest. Even imagine yourself standing over the corpse of the one you have hated. Will you now be free? The writer of this letter thought she would be. She thought her revenge would bring release, but she learned otherwise. She writes, I caught my husband with another woman. He swore it would never happen again. He begged me to forgive him, but I could not. I would not. I was so bitter and so incapable of swallowing my pride that I could think of nothing but revenge. I was going to make him pay and pay dearly. I filed for divorce, even though my children begged me not to. Even after the divorce, my husband tried for two years to win me back. I refused to have anything to do with him. He had struck first. Now I was striking back. All I wanted was to make him pay. Finally, he gave up and married a lovely young widow with a couple of small children. He began rebuilding his life without me. I see them occasionally, and he looks so happy. They all do. And here I am, a lonely old miserable woman who allowed her selfish pride and foolish stubbornness to ruin her life. Unfaithfulness is wrong. Revenge is bad. But the worst part of it all is that without forgiveness, bitterness is all that's left. Resentment is like cocaine. Cocaine can kill the addict and anger can kill the angry. It can kill physically, and it can be spiritually fatal too. It shrivels shrivels the soul. Hatred is the rabid dog that turns on its owner. Revenge is the raging fire that consumes the arsonist. Bitterness is the trap that snares the hunter. And mercy is the choice that can set them all free. Would you pray? Lord, you are right. And too many times, in so many ways, our ways are misguided. And maybe this morning, blessed are the merciful is not a feel-good sermon. It can get really personal. But no one can stand today and no one can shout and no one can exclaim 
that their hatred or their bitterness or their rage or revenge is working. It's not. And there's a free way. There's a joyful way. There is a blessed way. It's a happy way. And it's the way that experiences your mercy. That imparts it to others. That lives on a mercy mission. They get swept up in the good news. And Lord, it's, it's, it can be right here in front of us when we've been wronged. Jesus, I thank you for your teaching. It's better. It's light. It's life to us. I pray that we would receive it. Lord, I pray against the walls that we build, the hatred that festers, the unwillingness to do what we are called to do. You are rich in mercy, and yet so many of us can sit here today with scarcity of mercy. And we're nursing what makes us in the moment feel good and what we can brag about. But we're playing God. And vengeance is yours. And so is the opportunity to breathe life into us. We're going to stand, Lord, in a moment and take up offering. And we're going to sing about chains being broken, about being free. And I would pray that you would create freedom in us, in the midst of us. Lord, I pray that we would, uh, we would be caused to think today that you didn't mince your words and that mercy and our ability to experience mercy is in large part tied to how we show mercy to others. Lord, I pray that this good news of your mercy would get into us powerfully. God, I pray you receive our worship in these tithes and offerings. Lord, let us be on mission together as a family here. Blessed are the merciful. In you we pray. Amen.